Great. Thanks, Peter. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much for coming today. I think we have like two seats left, maybe right up here. Uh, if anyone walks in, but um, great to see you all. Happy July. Uh, we are starting a new, a new sermon series today in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul's second lit letter to his, uh, who he calls his son in the faith, a child in the faith, kind of a protege, another pastor uh, that he uh, is writing to to encourage uh, and to share the love of the gospel with. We'll talk about some of these things today and throughout the rest of the summer. I think it'll take us through Labor Day before we go into some, uh, something else uh, for uh, the rest of the fall and even school year. So more on that a little bit uh, later on. So um, 2 Timothy, a uh, couple uh, words by way of introduction on the pastoral letters. Uh, if you're new to this or maybe just, uh, again, um, to... Um, serve your memory uh, correctly if you uh, have read these before. Uh, the three pastoral letters of the New Testament are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, they were written by the Apostle Paul to pastors about things that relate to being a pastor. So basically one pastor writing to another pastor about being a pastor. Uh, and so Timothy was a pastor in the Ephesian church. Titus was a pastor in the Cretan church. And Paul writes to them to basically say, I love you. I am praying for you, stay encouraged, preach the word, refute false doctrine, train leaders, care for the outcast, organize and lead your churches healthily, and keep your head up when you're criticized. You've been called to this. It's going to be difficult. There will be good days. There will be bad days. Uh, but on the bad days, it may even cost you your life, but it's worth it. Caring for Jesus' bride is, uh, is worth it. So if you hear that and you're thinking, well, that's great, but I'm not a pastor, nor do I plan to be, uh, this series is not going to be for me, um, I would just remind you that whatever your role in a church, pastor or not, uh, these letters are a part of your Bible, uh, which means God wants non-pastors to know and love these letters as well and to hear his voice through them. Uh, and the big reason behind why that they are universal uh, in, in nature for all to read is that 2 Timothy is ultimately a book about the church and even more a book about Jesus, the true pastor of our souls. And that's part of the point to the pastoral letters is to write about pastors, human pastors, is to write about Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate pastor. He says as much about himself. Uh, the other apostles and Paul himself writes about Jesus in this capacity. Uh, uh, Peter does as well, calling him the chief pastor. Of, of our souls. And so to write about human pastors isn't a way to kind of write about a whisper or a reflection of the ultimate pastor. And so in that, again, it is a universal uh, teaching, a universal gospel or kind of beckoning to all of us, Christian or not, uh, to learn about Jesus through this uh, particular um, genre or lens. Uh, and also to write about the church is to write about the gospel because the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ and should reflect that and all that that she is. And so whatever uh, angle you're kind of thinking, whether you're um, thinking about or whether we're reading about the church or about something that Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, Christ is the ultimate goal and focus uh, as well as um, the gospel itself. We'll see that today if that's kind of new to you, uh, new concept, new conceptually or otherwise, we'll talk about it today. So it's about all I'm going to say today in terms of an introduction to 2 Timothy. Uh, if you're wondering, I don't think actually I said this, but we preached 1 Timothy two years ago. So if you're wondering, why are we starting here? Uh, we did this two summers ago as well. And that's all on our website and a SoundCloud account. You can podcast it if you want to listen to that concurrently with this. 
feel free. Uh, but in terms of introductions, about all I'm going to say, uh, if you are the type that's interested in the occasion of New Testament letters, the date of when it was written, uh, which was in the mid-60s from a Roman prison cell shortly before his execution under Nero, and also some of the related historical context behind it, uh, like what we think Paul's last years were like. This was probably his last letter that he wrote, at least the letters that we have in the New Testament of his. Um, let me know, and I can recommend some books for you to read on that, or, if, or we can just talk more about it too. I'd love to, uh, to do that. But none of that is necessary to know in order to understand this book. Please hear that. None of that stuff is necessary to know in order to understand this book. What you do need to know to understand this book is the gospel. The gospel is, according to the Bible, the great mystery revealer. It's the great secret revealer. It's the great veil-lifting act of God in history. And that, that is in reference to really all things. It, re- it refers to salvation, but also to Scripture. To understand Scripture, to have the veil lifted, we have to know what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is his death and resurrection, which, which benefits sinners. And so, uh, if you know that, you can understand this book. Historical context, literary context, all that stuff is helpful sometimes, but it's not the magic pill. It's not the key. Uh, it's uh, in, in, uh, potentially contrary to what you've heard uh, from others or have read. It's just not. The Bible never says that. The Bible never says that historical context is the mystery revealer. The Bible never says literary context is the great solver of mysteries. It says Jesus is. But it never says historical context kind of is. And so we need to remember that too and kind of resign ourselves, submit to how Scripture read itself, reads itself and what it says about understanding the mysteries that fill it, uh, and the complexities that, that constitute it. All right, so uh, remember that and also just remember that, that God's words are always anchored to the word of his Son. God is the ultimate author of this book and all of his words kind of like find uh, its, its goal. Think of like a, an hourglass kind of tilted on its side. All the former words, and there are many in the Old Testament, kind of funnel down and, and find this little, this one singular point that is Christ. They all reference him somehow. And Jesus then is that ultimate anchor. He's the ultimate thing God is saying to a dead and dying world. And when you read 2 Timothy then, to not think that or, or believe that or know that, uh, it's just gonna, we're just going to be confused at the, or we'll misinterpret. We'll get something more about ourselves maybe, a moral lesson to follow rather than a gospel to, to Baskin. All right, so our ultimate question then today and throughout this series will be, as it always is and always should be, uh, where is the gospel in this particular passage? Where is uh, Christ? Even if it feels like it's amongst the weeds and something we have to work hard at mining for. To mix metaphors there a bit. All right, let's uh, dive right in today. Uh, gospel greetings is the focus. We'll talk about a few things today. This is essentially the, the introduction to the letter. If you've read the New Testament letters before, you know that they all have some kind of introduction uh, that acknowledges the author, the recipient, uh, a, a greeting that's kind of just drenched in uh, very helpful and encouraging theology for us uh, uh, always, but uh, today uh, as well. So 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 5, let's read it here in full to begin. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. 
I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. All right, let's start with, I have three kind of, kind of uh, uh, categorical things today that we'll look at, we'll kind of from top to bottom here. We'll look at first, the first couple of verses, the greetings of the gospel, we'll move into the smoke, what I call the smoke of the gospel, I'll explain that later. And then uh, the drama of, of the gospel will be, will be third. But let's just start with the first two verses, the greetings of the gospel. So uh, in one sense, this is pretty standard fare for greetings in ancient letter writing. So even non-biblical ancient letters would kind of begin this way with an acknowledgement of who's writing and who's receiving the letter. There would be even a kind of a wish of grace or peace, depending on if you were Greek or Jewish. Uh, but this uh, is, is a Christianized version of, of all of that. So theologically speaking, even though it's kind of standard historically, it's anything but standard when it comes to theology and for our encouragements. Um, even before we get into the details, um, I was thinking this week, and I'll just maybe pose it as a question uh, to you as well. Have you ever thought about how much the New Testament consists of this kind of greeting? That our theology uh, comes from letters. Our theology as Christians, what we hold most dear comes from God speaking to us by way of letters like a friend? Or have you ever thought how much that in Jesus, God greets us in love letters more than shouts at us from thunderous mountaintops? Like these things are actually really important to see. Uh, it's, it's meant to be disarming, I think. It's meant to be encouraging. Uh, and actually, as we learn elsewhere in another one of the New Testament letters called Hebrews, that we can actually approach God now with boldness and confidence and a clear conscience because of what Jesus has done for us. But the fact that these, these what amount to love letters fill the New Testament and kind of constitute uh, the, the crown jewel of theology, which is the gospel, is nothing to sneeze at. It is actually extremely important for us to see. Um, that's a broad thing. The, what, digging deeper, though, uh, and looking at exactly how the gospel takes shape through a greeting, uh, we see a couple of things. First is that Paul says he is an apostle, uh, which means uh, leader, pastor, essentially, uh, by the will of God. And he starts this way in 1 Timothy as well. So it's something that Paul really wants for his uh, pastor friends uh, to, uh, to hear. Meaning, he has this role as an apostle or a pastor by grace. So this is very stage setting for the rest of the letter. We'll see this kind of uh, mindset and idea come up later in, in 2 Timothy as well, and certainly in 1 Timothy and, and Titus. Uh, but it's important for pastors to know this about themselves and their roles. And so there's like eight of you in the room who are pastors right now in this church. Actually, maybe some of you are visiting, you're pastors. But to all of us who are pastors and to future pastors, we need to understand that we have our roles by grace. They are gifts. They are undeserved they're not um, um, something we ascend to, we work for, and check boxes to attain. No matter how much we actually work for them or, or go to school for it, uh, in the end, it, it, is, it is a gift. And it's a very humbling thing, but that's the point. And, and I think that's why Paul's words are important for all of us here, pastor or not. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and 9 says, in the form of a rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have in life that wasn't given to you? And Paul is saying absolutely everything in life, no matter how hard you work for it, study for it, no matter how much you climb the mountain, 
everything at the end of the day, whether given aside from those efforts or works or through them like a channel, is a gift from God. Every breath, every moment, uh, every degree, every job, every relationship, uh, all, all these good gifts that come from above, like it says in James chapter 1, are gifts from, from God. And he delights in giving gifts to his children. And so uh, it, this is why it's a word for all of us then, not just for pastors, but because to say, and this is to hone in a bit more on salvation, to say an apostle by the will of God is the same thing as saying saved from my sins by the will of God, apart from my works. This is why Paul starts this way. He's saying, if you know Paul's story from Acts chapter 9, he wasn't even looking for Jesus or certainly seeking to be a Christian pastor. He was killing Christians. And Jesus shows up and saves and reveals himself to him and says, I've got an idea. Like, I'm going to show my, the, 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 the masteries of my glory and how I work in an upside-down way the world does by making this, wor- this the worst of men uh, to be this chief apostle, to show that it's not by works that we're saved. It's not by our moral acuity. It's not by what we do. And, and that's also true with our positions then in, in church as well. Um, there's no status. There should be no status in church. There should be no uh, labels. We have titles because we have jobs here, but there should be no like pyramid. Uh, it's, it's just we have roles, and those are important. Leadership's important. Pastors are important to have in churches, but it's not status, you know, when, especially when it, when it relates to and syncretized with our idea of um, God and what it means to be close to him and, and, and salvation and all of that. So, um, Sometimes I think uh, of Christianity as kind of like running a race, winning, but then looking back behind you and realizing the only reason you won is because everyone else pulled up and let you win. That's, like, that's what Christianity is like. Maybe it's not the, the best analogy, but it's, the point is it's a mix between the joy of winning and the humility of realizing you did nothing to accomplish it. That's what, like, that's what it means to feel as a Christian, to feel when you're exposed with the gospel. It's the best thing ever because you know how much God loves you, what he's spent to save you. Uh, it's about change. It's about hope for eternal life uh, and, 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 and all, all of that. But it's also about the humility of realizing that all is given, nothing's earned. And it's, it's this um, weird kind of synergy between these two things. And we tend to fight against that all the time. Um, my nephew just uh, made an escape room in his basement and um, my family and I went to do it last week. And even like just there, like I'm thinking, I don't want to take a clue because I want to say that, I, that, I, that we did this all, you know, without a hint. Uh, you guys know escape rooms or something? You can, you can get hints, right? So, and we took two hints. Uh, but I'm like, oh, like I, I, I wanted like a pure non-asterized, you know, like a finish. And we escaped, but it's like, oh man, we took two hints. Or um, I had this thing where I want to take all the grocery bags in myself in one shot from the car. And I've got like, you know, and, and I'm like, why do I want to do this? Like, because Aletha's never impressed. And so I'm just like, <laughs> it's the only reason why I do it. But, and she's, so, so why am I, why do I still want to do this? But she, but I do. And I think we, this is, it's a sign that we have this, we, we bristle against help. We want to say we did it all of our, all ourselves. Like, who did this Kitchener model? Oh, you did it? Whoa, you know, or, or like, I did, I did the electrical and the duct work and I hired out for that. Yeah, but I did this. And we have this kind of thing, or it's instinctual thing to push back. But the gospel is, 
We have something because someone else suffered for us. We have something because someone else helped us. We have this thing, this greatest of treasures, salvation from sin, because someone else was our helper and, and, and gave to us. And that's why Paul starts this way. Um, he, he relatedly says, and uh, greets Timothy with, like he does most of his letters, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's essentially a summary of the gospel. He says, grace, which is undeserved love, uh, one-way love, uh, undeserved merit. Mercy, which is compassion or restraint shown to an offender. Uh, and peace, which is a declaration that the war is over. Uh, all of that from God as gifts through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This, this is, uh, again, like I alluded to this earlier, but this is what Christians hold most dear. This is what we wish upon other believers in our church, what we want non-Christians to come to understand as well, uh, what we pray for, what we consider the crown jewel of all theology, uh, in, and actually helps sometimes to think about what the opposite of these things are. Um, in Christ, there is no more law. In Christ, there is no more punishment. In Christ, there is no more enmity between us and God. There's no more letter grades, no disapproval, no fear. Uh, and, and so uh, this is important for a number of reasons. One, it's a summation of the gospel, but for Paul to write to Timothy, and he's going to have some things to ask of him as a pastor. Um, it, the only way for, for Paul to write a letter to Timothy that does ask a lot of him without crushing him is to start this way. The only, it's the only way to hear that instruction uh, from a pastor to a pastor and say, uh, keep after it, love your church, pray hard uh, for them, preach the gospel, refute false doctrine, stick your neck out, take bullets uh, for the sake of your people. Um, the only way to, to instruct and to hold that out for another pastor is, is through the gospel or it's on, on the foundation of grace, not by works. All right, so we'll start, just to start there, the, the greetings of the gospel, it kind of continues here, but I'm going to reframe it a little bit and talk about the, the smoke of the gospel. It's kind of the idea is here, where there's smoke, there's fire. You've probably heard that old, uh, the old saying. The idea is um, that, and this is true for other parts of this letter and, and the New Testament too, but how does the smoke of what Paul says here reveal to us that he's really thinking about the fire of the gospel? And so another way to say that maybe is, are there linguistic hints here? Uh, we kind of already did this in a way uh, by looking at that phrase, by the will, by the will of God, not by, by what we do. Uh, but, but furthermore, where is, there, where is there smoke? All right, two things I think uh, really jump out here. First is this phrase, faith lives in you, um, which is kind of a weird phrase if you think about it. Faith means uh, trust in Jesus. But to say faith lives in you uh, almost makes faith sound personified, doesn't it? He says, faith lived in Timothy's grandmother, then lived in his mother, and then now lives in him. Again, almost like faith was a person who was walking around deciding to take up residence in the hearts of different people at will. Uh, kind of like faith is in us, but not of us, is, is how this sounds. Uh, because why not just say that his mom and grandma had faith? Why not just say that? Why do you say faith uh, lives in the person? Why don't you just say have faith? Because 
To say someone had faith is not wrong. The Bible talks in those terms elsewhere. But Paul's spin on it here shows us that faith is not something that comes from us. So even though that we're called to have faith or trust Jesus, that's what it means to be a Christian, we don't source faith at the same time. We are indwelt by it as if it were an alien thing to our otherwise faithless souls. And if that sounds like splitting hairs, uh, it actually isn't. The point is encouragement here. Because if this is true, if faith dwells in us more than comes from us, then we start to worry less about how much faith we have or whether we express it sufficiently. And we start to just rest in the fact that he has saved us by grace, that God has pursued us, that he dwells in us. See, Christianity is not, you don't have this thing, so work hard to get it or produce it or reverse the problem that constitutes it. But instead, you don't have this thing, but God gave it to you. He, he did something from outside of you. That's the gospel. And so that's even true with faith. The, the, the point is not you don't have faith, so work hard to have it. The point is you are faithless. We, we are um, wired to, to distrust God and to trust instead in, our, in ourselves, to believe in ourselves. Uh, and we can't, it's, it, it's, we're stubbornly um, resigned uh, to that way of thinking and living. But the gospel is that faith comes from outside of you and lives within you. The, the, the gospel is that we're a Christian because Jesus died for us, because his spirit has softened our heart, because God chose to reveal himself to us in the person and work of his son, because he dwells in us, not simply because you yourself responded with a perfect response of, of faith. And so sometimes as Christians, especially as like uh, uh, Baptistic Christians that value conversion and, and all that like we do here, we can talk, we talk about faith responses or things like that. And that's true, that's good. We, we need to make a faith respo- respond and receive Jesus and respond to the, the call of the gospel. But at the same time, we can't shelve statements like this. We have to remember that the Bible also wants to encourage us in, in the sense that faith has come from outside. The fact that we believe is a gift So we just believe, rather than trying to measure it or wonder if our initial response was pure enough, we just believe, and we believe that God has wooed us to himself, and that's why we believe, that he's worked for our salvation more than, certainly more than we could ever. The second uh, smoke thing, which kind of relates to this, is this phrase, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, all right? Now, think about this sentence for a minute. Read that again in your mind. Especially focusing on the phrase, a clear conscience. I serve God with a clear conscience. All right, now let let me ask the million-dollar question here. All right? How? How can you do this? How can anyone do this? How can Paul say this? How can someone serve God or live their Christian life with a completely spotless, squeaky clean, clear conscience. How? Not a partially clear conscience, or a fleetingly clear conscience, but a clear one. No guilt, no fear, no shame, no second guessing. Even as I say this, you might be thinking, oh my gosh, have I ever had that, like in my entire life? Um, It's probably a good response, actually, to have 
But if you click on this phrase, a clear conscience, uh, the, the website that opens up essentially is rich, uh, and it's here for all of us. Um, this is also actually from a guy too, um, Paul, who calls himself the, the, the chief of sinners. Uh, so it's sort of like, well, how, you know, it actually, this actually is a helpful thing, but at first it's almost problematic because you're like, wait a minute. Um, this, the same guy who says I'm the worst person on the planet is also saying I have a completely clear conscience. Again, the, the question here is how? How can someone say that? How can someone think that? Aren't those contradictory ideas? And the response to that in the gospel is absolutely not. It's not a contradiction at all. Um, the reason Paul can say that he has a clear conscience is because he's a man of grace. See, the, the interaction between these two things right here, how they play off each other, how they kind of syncretize, um, how we see a Christian say both and mean both, that is actually the epitome of Christianity. Uh, without, you know, without one of these, we lose Christianity. Without one side of this equation, we're, way, we're so imbalanced, the boat just tips over and we capsize. The reason Paul can say he has a clear conscience is because he understands the principle of God's grace. That it's all about him, not at all about, all about God, not at all about him. In other words, if his salvation or our salvation, past or present, had anything at all to do with us, he couldn't say this. All right, so I'm saying this to you all as well and me. If you believe your salvation, past or present, the way you work out your salvation even, um, the idea of what does it mean to stay a Christian, uh, it, it applies here as well. If you believe that any of that whatsoever has anything at all to do with you, you will never be able to say, I have a clear conscience. Your conscience will sear you. It will crush you because part of your hope, your future, part of your identity as a human being and as a Christian will have to do with you. And that's a terrible place to be. And it's something the Bible doesn't want. And, and Paul is saying, God doesn't want. Paul is saying here, my conscience is clear, though I'm the worst of people because everything about me is a gift. It's not earned. I am alive with Christ through Jesus. He lives within me. I am dead. My sins are forgiven. I have the hope of eternal life. And I have a clear conscience as I serve God um, and pray. All right? So because of God's grace, Paul can say, chief of sinners and clear conscience in one breath. Uh, Hebrews 9, uh, 9, and 14, 9 and 14 says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered in the Old Testament according to the law, we're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. All right? Different book, different author, same idea. The law can never clear the conscience. Uh, by law, he means uh, the commandments of the Old Testament or this idea that in between us and God are stipulations, rules to follow, uh, ways of living that good Christians uh, live by. He's saying, if you live that way, uh, you will not have a clear conscience. The law could never clear your conscience because it was about you and your obedience. It's about you 
trying to be a good person. That, can never, that, that could never clear the conscience of the Old Testament worshiper. But Paul is saying, I do have a clear conscience. As a Jew, as one who'd memorized all of the laws of the Old Testament, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in Philippians 3. Well, what changed? Well, Jesus changed for him. Jesus came in and said, I, I, I am abrogating the old. I, I'm coming as a new wave of mercy and grace, unlike the rules and the law, which killed us before God because we couldn't keep them. We were too dead in our sins. But when Jesus came, because it was so much about him and so little about us, we could actually, as sinners, have a completely clear conscience. We don't have to worry anymore. Anxiety starts to decrease. Thoughts of ourselves entirely started started to decrease, uh, we, we find. And And so the movement then from old to new, you know, God isn't changing in the Bible, but the covenants do change. God never changes, but the testaments do. And with it, the way we should think and relate to God. Uh, The movement from old to new, law to grace, is nothing less than a movement from seared to clear conscience. And so I I would say um, Christians with a grace-filled Clear conscience, never ask, am I doing enough? Christians who live by grace uh, never ask the question, especially when it comes to spirituality and so forth, never ask the question, am I doing enough? Because they know that enough was done for them by Jesus. And they know that what stands between them and God is not one single iota of a law, but just the bloody body of Jesus and what he's done for us. That's why, again, Paul can say this, why we can say this. We can have a clear conscience, no matter how much of a mess our lives are, and they almost always are, that we can have a clear conscience before God because his blood is that powerful. It doesn't kind of clean you and then say, okay, now because I've cleaned you, uh, now it's up to you. Take the baton, the moralistic baton, and go live your life. That's not Christianity. It, what, what Christianity is, is the, the shower of the blood of Jesus, the gentle rain of it every single day of, of our life. And, and what happens, though, when we know that and start to believe that, we actually begin to serve out of love and freedom, thinking of ourselves less and others more and measuring less than we used to. One of the surest signs of legalism is measuring your spirituality. And grace is the, the antithesis of measuring. Like if we live by grace, we don't measure anything anymore when it comes to spirituality. There's no, there's no place for measuring. The only thing we measure is, God, is God's love, which is infinite, as far as the east is from the west. And you can't measure that, so I guess we don't measure anything either on those terms. But you get my point. The point is like when we care about the size of something, it's not the size of what we do. Or don't do. This is the size of his love. And, and Paul wants the Ephesian church to know that actually in, in chapter 3. And so he prays that, oh, that we'd all know the height, depth, width of the love of God. That's what it means to grow in, in our faith. And so nothing else under the sun, even good things, can truly change us for the better. Because nothing else other than grace can clear our conscience. 
All right, and that's where all this is headed, this third category, the drama of the gospel. Let me read verses three and four again. Night and day, Paul says, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. All right, so I think I mentioned to start the sermon, Paul is in prison, probably a second Roman imprisonment, not the one you read about at the end of chapter, the book of Acts, if you are familiar with that, um, but a second one under Nero, and this, this impending kind of persecution of Christians that was coming kind of a mid-decade, 60s AD. Um, Paul is separated, though, from Timothy, and, and, and he probably starts to see the writing on the wall that, that things aren't going that well in his trial of sorts in Roman's court, Roman court, and he's probably going to die soon. And so uh, he's writing to, writing to him, knowing this is probably the last thing he's going to say, and he wants to see him one more time, Hopefully, he's going to get there to Rome before he's executed, but anyway. The big thing to understand, though, is that Paul has this love for, for Timothy, and he, yeah, he deeply cares, and he wants to see him again, and, but he's separated, and, so, and obviously, hence the letter. But you can really see into his heart here. He wants Timothy to know that he's constantly praying for him. He's constantly remembering him. He hasn't forgotten him. And, he, and he's longing to see him, all right? So now, there, there are at least a few nods here, I think, toward what makes for a good pastor here. Uh, the, I think the, the biggest two being prayer and love. There are other things, you know, um, like Spence and I is, and, and Peter as vocational pastors have in our job descriptions, uh, you know, like literally. literally. But uh, I think, though, Prayer and love are, are two things you really see kind of come to the forefront here and something you can pray for us as pastors uh, for as well, that God would help us to love you, you all, and pray for you uh, continually, all right? But as I, said, as I said earlier to start the sermon, on, on a much more important level, this book is about Jesus Christ, the true pastor of our souls, not us, and not even primarily human pastors, and when we come to understand that, that God is the one that wrote this, this letter, a love letter to us with the blood of his, his son, um, then we hear it differently. Uh, and, and we understand that one of a pastor's jobs, actually, is to image Christ to his congregation. Um, we start to hear this differently. We, we come to see that Paul's words here aren't just his words, but Christ's words, uh, I would say it this way, that um, this is not just a letter from Paul to Timothy written in ink. It's a letter from Jesus to the church written in his blood. This is the, uh, to use a C.S. Lewis phrase here, this is, this is the deeper magic of the epistles, of the letters in the New Testament, the deeper magic. Second Timothy 1, then, is Jesus saying to us, I remember you in my prayers constantly. It's Jesus saying to us, I see you when you cry. I see you when you're afraid. I'm always with you, will never leave you nor forsake you, and I long to be with you physically again, that I may be filled with joy. You see, so far from like um, simply a lesson on how we should pray night and day for other believers and how we should long for Christians like Paul did here, though on one level, there is something to mimic, especially in prayer for pastors. Um, on another level, the hyperbolic nature, the exaggerated nature of the language here when Paul says, night and day, I pray for you, is here to show us that none of us have done that. Like, 
um, at least I'll be the first to say, even for the people I've cared about most in my life, I've never prayed night and day, like constantly for them. It's sort of like, I think like the, the language here is utilized to draw us beyond ourselves, even beyond Paul here a bit, to the one who is truly able to do this, which is God himself, which is his son Jesus, to truly be that intercessor uh, and truly be that carer night and day, to never sleep. The Bible says God never sleeps, so he's actually able to do this, to actually be the one to pray for us and intercede for us. And, and so it invites us to see echoes and reverberations of the sacrifice of Jesus because it, it's sacrificial to pray at night and, and at day. But how Jesus did this at the highest level for us when he died on the cross for our sins. And, and so what 2 Timothy 1 says is that through God's grace, we have a God who is running to us in love, not a God who is held at bay, nor one that we should fear to see face to face. Uh, if there's anything in this passage I hope you see, I hope you hear all of this. It all kind of relates anyway, but to see that, that God wants to be with you. I mean, man, have you ever thought about God that way? If you're at all like me, you think more about how um, you're supposed to want to be with God than you think about how much God wants to be with you. Uh, and and that, 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 um, that's huge. That, that needs to be a flip. Um, th- this is not primarily something to mimic. This is, that you are the Timothy in this passage. You are not the Paul. All right? Paul is the Christ figure. So Jesus is saying through him to us, I long to see you. I mean, I'm th- like when I hear that, I'm like, I, all of a sudden I fear less. You know, I, I fear the, 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 the impending death that might face me. You know, I, I fear um, my marriage uh, being on the rocks or my, and it's not, I'm just, I should say that. But um, if Aletha's like, what? She's going to hear this later. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but I fear like my, jo- you know, uh, job loss. I just fear less. Like I fear if, if this is true that God wants to be with me, I especially fear judgment less. I don't fear judgment. I don't, feel, I don't fear like being, being before God exposed because Christ is a blanket, not an exposer. He's a blanket, not a mirror. He's one who wants to be with me, not, not something we should fear. Um, and, so, and, and again, the way all of that's possible is the sacrifice of Jesus. The way all that's possible is because Jesus stayed up all night suffering for us, praying and sweating blood, then dying on a cross in the noonday sun, again, praying for us and interceding for us. Night and day, he suffered for us. Night and day, he intercedes for us. Night and day, he remembers us, all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for this passage, this book, how it begins, how, it's, um, how it greets us with, uh, and beckons us to God through the call of the gospel, uh, through love. Um, I, I love how these letters don't start with, Timothy, what's the matter with you? It doesn't start with a, uh, you, you have to do, do this better, try harder, but it's a wish of grace and mercy and peace. Uh, it's a pronouncement of good news, that God has done something in the world through Jesus, to give hope for people who are dying, hope for people who are hellbound, hope for people who are distanced from God, hope for people who don't know what grace is, hope for people who care more about vengeance than forgiveness, 
hope for people who are sinners. And that's what this book is about, like every book of the Bible. Um, God, I pray you these next several weeks uh, together in the series, help us to hear from you uh, through this um, and to, again, continually unclench our fists from ourselves and from our lives and um, from what we think good Christian lives should look like and instead open our hands to heaven uh, in praise and worship for what you've done for us and what you continually do in suffering for us that we can be close to you again. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.